listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Humanize Me. Actually, I shouldn't say hey, everybody. I should say hey, Garth Poorman, Patricia Chang, Jen Greenwich, Brian Rainey, Keith Page, Diane, Stephen Lentz, Alex Van Fossen, and Connie Dollins. And you say, why are you saying those names with such enthusiasm? Because I know those people. I mean, it's been amazing looking down the list of patrons of Humanize Me, the people that actually are signed up on Patreon for a monthly donation to keep the podcast going. And what's amazing about the list is it's a lot of wonderful people I've actually met out there in the real world while I've been traveling around giving talks and meeting people. And it's just these are, gosh, I love our audience. I mean, listen. If you're not a Patreon supporter, it doesn't mean I love you any less. It just means I don't know your name yet. And uh, it would be easy to get on the list and to get a shout out. It doesn't, you know, it's not a lot of money. Uh, You can do it for a buck a month. So anyway, to all of you people I just named, yeah, you know who you are and you know I know who you are and you know I'm happy. So there. Okay, enough of the shout outs. Now, listen, and I know you're saying it's a podcast. What else can we do? But I want you to listen carefully right now because this is going to be one of the most unusual introductions to a Humanize Me conversation of all time. And the reason is this. A few weeks ago, I get a call from some of my USC students, two of my favorite, most beloved students I ever had, Joey and Katie. And they say, Bart, we just went canvassing with David Fleischer. And they started to describe what what they were what they did with David Fleischer, who is um, kind of one of the leaders of the Los Angeles LGBT Center. And as soon as they started talking about the way they had gone canvassing, the way they had gone door to door talking to people about issues, I realized that they were talking to the David Fleischer, who is kind of the I don't know, the, the titan of deep canvassing, one of, the, one of the originators of this very particular way of talking with people that I'd already heard of. And, and I knew who Dave Fleischer was because I, I had heard him on this, I had heard a whole story about him on This American Life, the, 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 the most popular podcast in the country years ago. And, and, and after I listened to that show, a month later, they came on and said, listen, the studies that we quoted in our article about deep canvassing, it turns out were flawed studies. And then they came back a year later and said, there have been new studies. Deep canvassing is even better than we thought it was. And they did a whole other segment about deep canvassing. And if you've never listened to This American Life, this would be a great place for you to start. And, and on the show notes, I'll put the links to the two relevant podcast about deep canvassing. But the bottom line is, I ended up, Katie and Joey introduced me to David and they said, we should talk because the work that he's doing would have a ton of relevance to anyone who was trying to change attitudes in the world about secular people, about the possibility of pursuing goodness without God, about all the stuff, about, about, about the idea of creating a warm and loving fellowship around values, all the stuff I care about, 
that a lot of people have misunderstandings about. And they said, you need to talk to David. So I called him and we set up a conversation and we, and because I already knew what deep canvassing was, we jumped right into the conversation and it wasn't until it was over that I realized this was a wonderful conversation. It's probably going to make a lousy podcast unless I can figure out a way to communicate that knowledge. So what I did, David has this TED talk and I'm not going to play you the whole TED talk, but in the middle of his TED talk, when he's explaining the findings of these researchers who found that his way of talking with people, the way he and his volunteers learned how to talk to people works way better than hitting them overhead with facts and figures. Works way better than having like clever sayings and, and jamming people up and showing them that their ideas are unreasonable. In the middle of his TED talk, as, as, as he's talking about those studies, he has like a little five minute segment where he gives a great summary of deep canvassing. And he even plays some clips of a young person talking to, going to somebody's door and talking to them about transgender uh, rights in a way that's really refreshing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play that five minute segment and, and he's going to talk about deep canvassing. And, and what we mean by deep canvassing, like the simplest way is, is it's, a conversation that is really different from traditional canvassing in that in both cases, you kind of use a script, but the script in deep canvassing isn't about getting your ideas across. It's about building rapport so that you can get into a two-way conversation that lasts a lot longer and where you learn more about what matters to the other person than you ever would if you just tell them what matters to you. And so... I think you're gonna. I think you're gonna dig it. So, so first of all, I'm gonna play this clip of David, and then I'm gonna jump into my conversation with David just a couple of weeks ago, and you're gonna figure out that by the end of the conversation, we hadn't really covered everything. So, don't worry, there'll be a part two, but I think you're gonna like part one because David Fleischer is one of the most interesting, cool, and thoughtful people I've ever talked to about changing people's minds. So here it is. First, David Fleischer in his TED Talk. And then with very little further ado, David Fleischer and me chopping it up in a conversation. California voters rejected us. And the LGBT community was shocked and outraged and really didn't know what had happened. And I had an idea that maybe if we wanted to understand what had happened, we needed to go out to the neighborhoods where we'd been crushed. We needed to seek out the voters who voted against us. Here's Virginia Malacki on our team talking with a voter in Miami. And so, and so it sounds like that you started, you moved to a five because of the bathroom situation. That's right. The bathrooms. There is one thing that disturbed me. Uh, yeah. I don't know if, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, a man that is a... Uh, Mm -hmm. Using his uh, men clothing, uh, uh, goes into a uh, uh, lady's room. That I would not like. Oh, oh, where does that come from, that feeling, that understanding? Because I'm from South America. In uh -huh. South America, we don't like facts. Oh, okay. Absolutely. Is that what you refer to as, like, transgender or all gay people, or...? The upside of having a voter use a word like fag is we know they're comfortable enough with us to be honest with us. 
And that kind of rapport turns out to be essential if we want to change their mind. So for me, it wasn't really a decision or like a, a choice. It was like, this is just who I am. And so my, how I feel is that I love who I love, like for who that person is. And then my, like my body and like gender, right? It doesn't necessarily match the fact that who I feel on the inside, like as a woman or I don't identify as a woman actually. Virginia's just blown his mind with two different decisions. <laughs> Virginia has number one, reacted with directness. And simultaneously, number two, Virginia has been kind. And what makes these conversations work is when we show up as human. That's when we're able to affect the people we're talking with. You never met anybody who's, who's gay or transgender? Never met. Never? Never met. Oh. So we don't usually use the word fag. So... Well, it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I... So, yeah. Yeah. Just, I'm losing my, my... So just gay or transgender words? Transgender. Yeah. Well, I can tell that when you're saying it, you're not mean. You don't say it with like negative or bad oh, feelings. No. It was just in my, so, yeah. my way of being, like you, oh. you just said it. Yeah. Do you remember, uh, so one of the things too, that why I know it's not really a choice for me is like right now I am madly in love with this person. Uh, their name is Lourdes. And Lourdes. Yeah, beautiful name. And they're, they're a teacher and they're gorgeous. And I'd love to show you a picture because you showed me one of yours. There, there yeah. there's, that's my partner. I'm head over heels. Like I can't even begin to tell you that I want to spend the rest of my life with this person. Virginia just offered this voter his first real lived experience with an LGBT person. But to go deep, We've learned that we have to go beyond telling our story because we've got to go beyond telling. But that sounds like when you talk, like, that there's a lot of love in your tone too. Well, so. One thing about uh, love is, I feel like uh, God gave me still love to uh, yeah. love a disabled person yeah. and care about it. That resonates a lot with me because like, I know that I'm going, to, I'm going to take care of Lourdes for the rest of my life. Um, well, maybe she will take care of you. I know. Well, we'll take care of each other. Well, you just saw the number one most powerful thing in action. Virginia helped the voter discover and reflect on his own real lived experience. All right. So that was the TED Talk section. Now, here's me and David talking about what he's learning and they've learned, and how we can use that to be better human beings, which after all, is what this podcast is all about. Hey, thanks for making time to talk with me. Oh, well, sure, Bart. Dave, how old are you, man? I'm 64. You know, that used to sound old to me. Uh, it still but, sounds old to me. I know, but like now that I'm 56, like I used to think 64, like I can't even see that from where I am. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, it's just around the corner. Uh, well, so, yes, that is uh, chronologically correct, Bart. <laughs> so so how long have you been in in the role that you're in now at the LGBTQ Center? Or what, what do they call the thing? What, what's the name of it right now? Uh uh, so I work for the Los Angeles LGBT Center, and I've been there. It'll be, uh, it's almost 10 years, uh, and I've been doing uh, 
I've been doing political organizing my whole adult life, and I really started out as a boy. My first time going door-to-door canvassing, I was 15. So, uh, Who are you canvassing for? That was for Howard Metzenbaum when he was running for the U.S. Senate in Ohio in the Democratic primary, and he upset John Glenn. Oh my goodness. So yeah, so almost 50 almost 50 years of uh yeah. So so did you grow up in Ohio? Yes, I grew up in Chillicothe, Ohio, not far from where I gather you are right now. I am. I'm I'm right here in in the heart of Cincinnati. Yeah. No, I have fond yeah. memories of Cincinnati, but even more of Columbus and uh but you know, uh <laughs> uh Chillicothe for 18 years, and my dad still lives in the house we grew up in. So I'm back in Chillicothe on a a pretty regular basis. What was growing up like for you in Chillicothe? Well, it, 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 we were, I mean, I I just think, like, I would, I'm I'm sorry, let me contextualize that question. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of things I could tell you. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I was just down at the Pride Parade, um, this past weekend. Um, and it was in Cincinnati, which was so different from the pride parade I had been to in Los Angeles. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, the more questions I asked, the more I became aware that growing up different in Ohio is very different than growing up different in Los Angeles, that the, that the community here is in just a very different place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even more so then, right? So, yeah. uh, Yeah. I mean, growing up in Chillicothe, uh, in retrospect, right? uh, I was aware that some uh, people were gay, but I didn't know any. And I certainly didn't ever want to talk about this. And uh, I've known since I was six that I was gay or attracted to men. I didn't really have the vocabulary at that time. So I, uh, yeah. So I knew, I knew that uh, this was true about myself and that I must never speak of it. And I don't know how I learned that so clearly. Uh, we were also the only Jewish family in Chillicothe, Ohio. So I have memories (laughs) starting at age six of, uh, of, uh, I, I have memories from every year of my life, starting at age six, uh, about people reacting to my being Jewish, uh, not uh, in an unkind way, but just being surprised by it, curious about it. Uh, I, it what I learned very early on is that I was, uh, you know, uh, not normal. <laughs> and right. uh, so being Jewish Maybe that was good practice, uh, but but I didn't try to apply that to talking about being gay. When did you, I mean, so were you in a big family or a small family? Uh, my mom and dad, and uh, there were four of us kids when I was growing up. Yeah, I mean, I'm just wondering, like, at what point, you know, I, I, it's funny because when I, I, I grew up in this very evangelical world, and spent 30 years as an evangelical minister before, you know, finally realizing there was nothing left of my supernatural credulity. But when I came out, 
when I sort of told people like, yeah, I'm done with this, uh, with, with, with believing, they were all like, yeah, we knew that. We wondered when you'd figure it out. Um, and and, 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 and I've, a lot of my gay friends said, yeah, that was kind of my experience coming out that everybody else had sort of be, was aware of what I was not saying out loud or what. Did your siblings know who you were? Did they did they figure that out but without you telling them or did, did you have to tell them? You know, I don't think anybody in our immediate family knew. And I, 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 my impression at the time was that I was doing a truly fabulous job uh, fooling everybody. Uh, but uh, I did have experiences uh, before I came out that, that did give me a little bit of a clue that, in fact, uh, maybe I wasn't fooling uh, very many people at all. So I, uh, I had a job between my junior and senior year in college. And I was working as a prison guard in Texas. What? That's not your usual summer job. No, no, not for somebody going to Rice. Uh, and, uh, but I was really, I was majoring in sociology and criminal justice was super interesting. And, uh, I was fascinated by prisons and I was writing my senior thesis on this. So uh, it seemed like the best way I would have something original to contribute would be to see what in the world this was really like, because it was a world, right. of course, I only knew from reading, not from real experience. And uh, so it was certainly in my first week might have even been my first day on the job that uh, everybody in the prison figured out I was gay. Uh, not, not that we ever talked about it. It just became, uh, they, they realized somehow that I was gay. And, uh, and, and I think the single biggest indicator that tipped them off was that I was kind and polite to the inmates. Wow. You know, I, I just wondered if, if <laughs> isn't that funny that that it is, that, it is, you know, but uh, you know, because the norm in the prison was to refer to people uh, either by their last name only, right. Or uh, by uh, a racial term that I never yeah. use. And, uh, and I, I think the fact that I wasn't going to use that racial term was shocking. And it was certainly non-normative because almost all of the guards were white or seemingly white and uh, virtually all the inmates were black. So uh, and, they didn't and, think you were they didn't think you were soft. They, they immediately went to gay. Well, maybe it's the same thing for them. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah. But in any event suspect and other and an outsider uh and uh and 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 so interestingly enough that affected uh some of the assignments that i got or didn't get because uh uh they quickly realized they wanted me mostly in what's called the control picket it's the glassed in booth in the main hallway where you know you're controlling 
some of the doors in and out of the prison and you're doing a wide variety of other tasks and uh but you're not uh moving guys around there side by side with inmates whereas some of the jobs where you'd be in the main hallway of the prison you'd be right there uh and so i guess you know they were thinking uh that that yeah. I don't know if they were thinking that inmates would physically try to take advantage of me or, you know, part of the disciplinary proceedings in the prison at that time included guards physically. I mean, you would really call it assaulting yeah. inmates. And uh, I think they discerned that I, I wouldn't be the right guy for that job. That's so interesting. And so 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 other than the prison population of Texas, when did the rest of the world figure out? Well, that you were I, gay? I don't know. I mean, I think a different you know, it's very hard for me to judge this. Uh A, because, you know, I'm I'm just the way I am. And uh and and uh and but for instance, we were just canvassing uh June fifteenth in a conservative, predominantly Republican uh, area. And uh, the first voter that uh, I spoke with, really wonderful woman in her late 70s, Rosella, and uh, Republican through and through, we had uh, a conversation at the beginning uh, where, you know, uh, as we were talking, she made it very, very clear that she was a dyed-in-the-wool Republican. She was only voting Republican. She was a single-issue voter. That was abortion, and she was very anti-abortion. So we have this conversation. It's it's actually very civil and uh, even kind uh, because I think she's a little surprised that I'm so willing to just listen and not contradict her. I'm just curious about how she sees things. But, but uh, in the course of this, you know, in our deep canvassing, uh, we tell a story about somebody we love and we ask each voter to tell us about somebody they love. And she didn't tell me a story about somebody she loved. And, you know, uh, so the conversation wrapped up without my learning anything very deep about Rosella. So then, um, I leave and I'm and I'm training a new canvasser, an organizer visiting from Michigan, Betsy. So Betsy and I sit on the curb and we talk about the conversation and how it went, what Betsy thought about it. And Rosella comes back out of the house to find us. And she comes over and continues the conversation, uh, but in a very different way. She actually says, you know, I will tell you a story. And uh, she, she, so we talked for another five minutes, very pleasant, even more relaxed now. And Rosella goes back home. So Betsy and I continue debriefing. And then we are on our way to the next house. Rosella comes out again to find me and Betsy. <laughs> and uh, she says, you know, there's something else I want to tell you. Uh, I have a son and he's gay. Now, my being gay has not yet come up in this entire conversation. So what I've got to assume is that Rosella has very clearly seen me as a gay man. 
and yeah. uh, and and she's trying to connect. Uh, yeah, well, she's trying to connect, but also, uh, it, in other words, uh, there's nothing. Uh, it, it must be so obvious that Rosella immediately sees this or right, concludes right. this. So then I do come out to her and we have a lovely discussion about her son. And she tells me an even more important story about somebody she loves. Um, uh, we, this conversation goes on longer. 10 minutes later, she goes home. Um, uh, you know, uh, Betsy and I are about to go each our separate ways now, uh, canvassing different doors. Rosella comes back with a plant for Betsy and a spatula for me uh, because she has housewares she's been giving away and people have taken the dishes, but nobody has taken three spatulas that are very nice, uh, that are very usable. And uh, she offers me Here one. You go. So the, uh, the bottom line is probably a lot of people over the course of my life uh, saw me as gay and uh, they didn't offer me a spatula and a story about a gay person, but uh, you know, they, they, I, I, so I, I'm a bad judge is what I'm telling you of who right, knows right. and who doesn't. But, but, you know, at some point, Dave, at some point you become this kind of, I don't know what to call it, like this kind of maestro of canvassing. Um, you know, you, you, you took a couple of my USC students canvassing a few weeks ago and they called me and it was like they had been out with a magician. They just couldn't believe the conversations that they got into and they couldn't believe the power of listening and sharing stories the way that you taught them to and the way that you showed them. It's like, I'm trying to get from Rice University, I'm going like, where did this deep canvas thing thing where did it come from in your life? Like, how did you come to be a deep canvasser? Yeah. Well, uh, Katie and Joey are great, by the way. Aren't they wonderful? They really are. They're the best. Yeah. They're the best. Yeah. Well, you know, there are two ways I could tell you this story. So I'll tell you uh, the short way, right, is that uh, deep canvassing, uh, in a way, was a total accident. And discovering it was an accident because, right, I started canvassing when I was 15. And there are a lot of assumptions that are conventionally made when you go door to door. And, and I would say, although uh, I broke some of the rules, uh, I would say a lot of the assumptions embedded in conventional canvassing, I hadn't even recognized. And I can tell you more about those. But the bottom line is, it, it was really uh, not until 2008 when California had a big statewide vote on gay marriage called Prop 8. And all the polling showed that the LGBT community would, would win easily. And, and we lost. And, uh, and, and, you know, the day-to-day -day experience of living in California, if you're LGBT, can be very positive. So it's really shocking to think that a majority of the people voting are voting against us. And 
for the LGBT community, it was a moment of great upset and anger and shock. And also, I think, uh, a, a, a sense of, of, uh, powerlessness because it revealed to us that we didn't know as much about our neighbors as we thought we did. And we didn't know. I can't even imagine that. Like what it would be like. It would be like me waking up one day and finding out that all my neighbors had suddenly said they weren't okay with Bart Campolo. Yeah. So it's very hurtful. And, and people didn't really know what to do. And so uh, the guy who's now my boss asked me uh, to come out to California. I wasn't here for Prop 8. I was working uh, in the run-up to the 2008 election doing different projects in Florida and in Ohio. And... Uh, but he said, please come out here and meet with people. We need to figure out a positive, constructive way forward because the things that came to mind for people were angry marches. And it, although those have some place, they don't get you far. They really don't. Uh, and so, uh, so I came out, met with people. It was, he was right. People weren't sure at all what they could do. It felt like everything people knew to do had been done. The campaign had spent $40 million. Uh, and uh, so uh, anyway, the best idea I had was since it seems that we didn't know as much as we thought we did about uh, our neighbors, maybe what we ought to do is go door to door to talk to the people who voted against us and ask them why they did that. Yeah, find out what's going on there. And it turns out, honestly, Bart, that's the smartest idea I've ever had in my life. Uh, and uh, it also shows what a dimwit I can be because I've lost plenty of other elections and that idea would have been really good, but it had never occurred to me in decades uh, previously that maybe talking to people who voted against us after the election would be informative. Uh, so, but that's, that's what put us on this path. Yeah. I remember listening to, was it, was it this American life that did that great piece on deep canvassing? Yeah, they did a couple. Yeah. I remember listening to that and thinking, why have I never thought of this? Why has nobody ever thought of this? Why don't people try to find out why people disagree with them? Yeah. And I think, the best way I can understand it is that uh, at least many of the people on the progressive side of things, we have, a, we have an irrational confidence in rationality and we have an, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and we have an irrational confidence in telling in, that if we, we somehow think that if we just correct people and tell them where they're wrong, factually or in some other way, that they'll change. And, 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 and in fact, if we really reflect for even a minute, we, we would realize that hypothesis, uh, you know, we, we know it's not true. We know it from our own experience, right? Think about the 
last time you changed your mind about something really important to you? Was it because somebody told you you had it all wrong and they offered you some facts to correct you? Yeah. You know, I doubt it, right? Because it sounds like you've had several, you know, really powerful moments of change in your mind. Absolutely. I, mean, I was talking to an author the other day and she was explaining about this person who, who she, when she was a, a Jehovah's Witness missionary in um, China, like to, going door to door in China, trying to sell Jehovah's Witness stuff. Um, and she ended up in an internet relationship, like an online chat room relationship with some guy who was asking her questions about why she believed what she believed. And, and he was reasoning with her, but it was like the ideas were important, but it was the relationship that changed her. And she was very clear about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when, you, when, when you had this sort of brainstorm, when, you, when, 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 when this idea occurred to you, let's go talk to these people, how, how difficult was it for you to figure out how to talk to them? Like how, like how to knock on the, I mean, obviously you had a great experience at knocking on doors, um, but how did you get people to talk with you? Well, first of all, right, going into it, we realized we didn't even know if these people would talk with us, right? And in fact, there were, uh, the only way we were going to find out was by trying it because uh, we didn't know anybody who had ever tried it. And in fact, I don't think I have ever yet met anybody <laughs> who took this approach. So, um, we, uh, you mean before or, or, or even now, even now, do you well, feel before, like a, a, well, a voice no, in the wilderness? Before. Well, before, in other words, I, I, there wasn't anybody I could call up and say, what was it like when you went out after an election canvassing the people who voted against you? As, as obvious as this idea now seems, it's not clear to me that anybody has ever done this. And it's certainly so far from normal political practice, at least on the progressive side, that uh, we, were, we were in totally unknown territory. So uh, we actually had a meeting at, there's a wonderful Methodist church in Hollywood uh, uh, with a big room. We had 95 people there most of them who had been very active in the campaign to try to defeat Prop 8. And uh, so uh, we shared different ideas about what to do, but people liked this idea when I shared it. So then what we did is we asked the whole room to think about what, what might make up the conversation. What, what do we want to do? And, uh, and, and everybody had different ideas. So we made a list. We just brainstormed and we listed absolutely every idea that people had about what we thought could work. And uh, I had a couple of ideas uh, that I added into the mix. And, uh, but it was an amazingly long list of ideas collectively. And we made an agreement that we would try all of them until we figured out what worked. 
And in the meantime, uh, the team that was at the Los Angeles LGBT Center, uh, we we decided that when we went out, not only would we try all of these different things, not all in one conversation, but we would eventually work our way through that. But the way we would track what we learned, so the way we would record what happens was that we had a piece of paper with four lines on it. The first line at the top left was for what we said. The second line indented and just below it was what the voter then said. Below that, another pair arrayed just the same. So then after the voter says something, what do we say and what did they say? Because we really didn't even want to create a set of boxes categorizing or characterizing the responses of the voters because uh, because we were sure that we probably knew too little about the way these voters saw things. So we didn't want to end up with an artifact of our own thinking. We really wanted to see if we could listen and learn something new. And so then we organized the canvas and we went out door knocking and we did the best training uh, that we knew at the time to help people be prepared to listen to people who had a different point of view than we did. And it wasn't difficult to know where to go. We had the election results and we were creamed in so many different neighborhoods that we, we had quite a variety to choose from. We ended up over the next five years canvassing almost, in fact, I think pretty much all of those neighborhoods in Los Angeles. And did it work straight out of the gate or did you find out that there's a learning curve over time or, or is the idea so intuitive that just, you know, just do it and it works? No, I would say it's not intuitive because we have a bunch of terrible habits. <laughs> and so, right. Uh, just like the uh, humanists and atheists you were referring to. The things we've done habitually, we tend to keep doing. And the ideas that we had brainstormed, what we rapidly learned is uh, virtually all of them were no good at all. <laughs> so uh, it was very exciting uh, because we were rapidly discarding things uh, as we kept trying. But the things that we learned that encouraged us were, first, these voters were willing to talk with us. That, that was a big surprise, right, to a lot of people, maybe to everybody emotionally. Um, and there was a small amount of unkindness, but overwhelmingly, uh, voters were polite or much better than polite. And, uh, and then, uh, we, we were kind of lucky in that one of the ideas that, you know, had occurred to many people in the room uh, turned out to be the second best idea. We, <laughs> and, but not a close second best. It's like if you had a hundred story building, what we've, 
over the course of 15,000 conversations, that's really what it took, we learned what was the number one best thing. But if like that's your 100th top floor, uh, you know, effective thing to do, drop down 90 floors to number two. But number two was still effective, and we discovered that pretty early on. And then virtually everything else, uh, not impactful at all, because many of the ideas that we had were all predicated on telling people something. So the number two idea uh, also involves telling, but it's when we tell a personal story about somebody we love or about ourselves. That, that, uh, that was number two. Yeah. And, uh, but it took us a long time to stumble on number one. So what's number one? The number one most important thing we can do once we're out there talking to people who, you know, see the world differently than we do is to it's not us telling our story about somebody we love. It's eliciting from the voter a story of theirs about somebody they love. That's what's important. Somebody they love that's somehow being affected or they think is being affected by whatever it is that you're talking about? Well. Or does it not matter? The more I've done this, the more I think it doesn't matter. But. What does matter is that it's a story where they're vulnerable. It has emotional significance for them. And the person they're talking about uh, and the experience they're relating, they're describing it in the kind of detail that you do when you're telling a story that you're never going to forget. It matters to you so much. And so it could be a story about somebody they love being judged unfairly or unkindly, uh, but it could just be a story that indicates that uh, this is somebody they love and why they love them. Or it could be a story, in, in other words, the, uh, the common ground really is not around the political point or the opinion, that might end up being where we discover common ground by the end. But in the beginning, right, these are people who, you know, are opposed to gay and lesbian couples getting married. So there's no common ground on the opinion of, is, uh, is marriage for gay and lesbian couples a good thing or acceptable? That's where there isn't common ground. But where there is common ground is people talking about, for instance, their own marriage, somebody they love who they got married to in a heterosexual relationship, and then asking them, how's the marriage worked out? And, and, and overwhelmingly, people were telling us that marriage is uh, the best thing they ever did. And this person in their life has been so incredibly important to them in so many ways. 
And if you just are willing to listen and ask, tell me, tell me why it's the best thing you ever did. There's this beautiful story. And, uh, and so then there is some common ground. The common ground is when you love somebody, when you're lucky enough to find somebody you love enough that you want to spend your life with them, of course you want to marry yeah, them. Of course you want to do that, yeah. And, and so all of a sudden there's enormous common ground. We're agreeing with them and they're agreeing with us on how lucky you are when you get to marry the person you love. Has, has this way of talking with people percolated into the rest of your life? I mean, I, my, my sense is that you were probably all, always a fairly sensitive listener, um, or at least you, you come across as somebody who's always been attuned to other people. But do you feel like recognizing what was happening out there in the big world when you were knocking on doors of strangers, do you feel like that's changed the way you talk to your friends and your family? Yeah, I'm so sorry to inform you that... Uh... I had such remarkable room to improve as a listener. <laughs> it's really embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've we've gotten very good fairly early on as we started uh, canvassing. It became clear that when we failed with an idea, it was really easy for us to explain that to each other. We would debrief. We would know it didn't work. We could get rid of it. But when we started to find ideas that worked a little bit, uh, or when voters said things that surprised us, it was very difficult to even understand in conversation among each other what had worked. And uh, so the other really big idea that I feel like I contributed, and it's kind of funny it occurred to me, but it just occurred to me, we needed to try to video these conversations. And I, and I remember talking with Regina about it, who was one of my colleagues. And when I told her, I thought we ought to do this, she just laughed and laughed and laughed. She said, Dave, Dave, we're going door to door, seeking out uh, homophobes and coming out to them. And you think they're gonna wanna talk with us on video. Uh, you know, and of course, I had no idea if they would. I had never tried doing it. I had never known of a canvas doing it. Uh, and in the beginning, it, it was very, uh, we couldn't figure out how to do it because, of course, you need the person's consent. Sure. Um, and how do you even but, ask? But then we did figure it out slowly but surely. Uh, and and so one of the the first video we have of me canvassing on marriage is still a really valuable piece of video that sometimes I use to show what bad listening looks like. Yeah, it must have been. I, I mean, this podcast is, you know, when I do the podcast that I do and I have to listen to me talking to other people, I'm horrified. <laughs> well, right. I'm just horrified. It, well, there's all... So... In other words, uh, yes, if you had asked me, I would have said, oh, I'm a fabulous listener. Actually, I would not have said that. <laughs> I would have lied to you. I would have said, oh, I'm pretty good. But what I would have been thinking is, oh, I'm a fabulous listener. And uh, yeah, but the truth is, um, I would say I was a very, very selective listener. 
I listen for agreement with things <laughs> that I already believed. And I'll and and then, you know, that habit of you listen, right? I think it's Fran Lebowitz who said uh the opposite of listening is, isn't talking. It's it's waiting. And so when you're reloading, that's right. So they're talking and you're being quiet, but you're not really listening. You're just ready to get your next remark in. And uh, you already know what you're going to go with. And uh, so, yes, there's no question that uh, that I've had to become a much, much better listener than I was. I, I have this friend, Anthony Magnabosco, who he does this thing called street epistemology where he's out on the street with a clipboard and a video camera and he just asks people if he can talk to them about some deeply held belief of theirs. And uh, it's, it's not deep canvassing because he doesn't really – he, he he listens to their them talk about their beliefs, but like it's it's a very reasoning kind of thing. It's about epistemology and why do you think what you think. Mm -hmm. But he does, but he does videotape people, and uh, and he's told me the same thing that there's as painful as it can be. There's something about watching ourselves do it that you can actually see in your own eyes, like when when you stop listening, and and when you go to the next idea. And of course, if you can see it, so so can the other person. Um, so, so you, you feel like you, I mean, I'm, I'm, I know you got better over time at deep canvassing and it sounds like you can deep canvas about not just, not just gay marriage, but you can deep canvas about almost anything. Well, we're trying to see if that's true. What we did in 2018 that we discovered we, that, and we got pretty good at is deep canvassing voters who who mostly don't vote and canvassing them to see if uh, we could help them reconsider and decide that they're going to vote and they're going to vote even in a midterm election on the 10th thing on the ballot, which is where the race for Congress was in Orange County, where we were canvassing. Uh, so, we, yeah, we and I know we're about out of time for today. But so if you want, we could schedule another time to talk more if you wish, because I could tell you, you know, there was a lot we had to discover that's specific to that group of people and to and to the changes that we were hoping we could encourage people to make. I feel like we've got a set of principles about deep canvassing that we know pretty well, but there's still a significant amount of learning each time we try to apply it to something new. Because understanding somebody else's point of view when it's different than ours, uh, it's just not, it's just not immediate. It's just not. I would like to talk more and I'll tell you why, because this, this, this thing that happens to me so often with people in their families and among their friendships, but just in the world where, where the issue of being an openly secular person sometimes feels like a challenge to the other person. And I'm, I'm really trying to figure out how to teach people how to talk to their, to people who are believers. 
and how to talk to them, not necessarily always to try to change their, their, their mind, but, but more to try to change their heart, um, to try to create a context in which they can see goodness in the other position. Um, and so I, I do feel like, I feel like there's some stuff I want to learn. Um, and I also, I guess, I guess I'm curious if, if you think, if you think it's important to talk to people about faith stuff, because it, I mean, in some ways I feel like when you were talking about gay marriage, you were talking about an article of faith for people, um, for many people, you know, it's, it's not a rational thing. It's, it's something that they deep believe deep in their hearts. And so, yeah, I, I guess I'm really glad to hear the story of how you figured out what you're doing, but I've got some technical questions. Yeah. I'm glad to talk with you about it. And I do think it's the exact same thing. And I think the thing that I'd want to hear from you is what do you want to accomplish by the end of your conversation? What would success be? Because, uh, yeah, I think having secular people and people of faith being able to love and respect each other and talk with each other and listen to each other it's essential because, uh, yeah, there's, there's bigotry on both sides, right? Some secular people really have some really, I, in fact, I could even tell you my own view of faith uh, has really changed over the course of my lifetime. And I'm a secular guy. I was a secular guy all the way along. I'm still a secular guy, but I used to have one view of faith and people of faith, and it's really changed. So I'd yeah. be glad to tell you about that too. Yeah, and, no, that's, that, that'll be part two. That'll be a good conversation to have. I, I'll, I'll send you an email and figure out when, when, we can, when we can do it again. But this is, Joey and, and Katie really are two of my best and brightest young people I've ever worked with. And they're just really convinced that in, in, in you and what you're learning, that there's something that could be really, really useful to changing the conversation that, that we're having in this country about faith. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm really grateful for, for your willingness to engage. It means a lot to me. Oh, Bart, it'll be a pleasure. I can tell it'll be a pleasure. It is a pleasure. <laughs> All right, man, go, go do what you're supposed to be doing and I'll, I'll, get, I'll get with you soon. All right. That was me and David Fleischer talking about deep canvassing. Are we going to talk some more? Of course, we're going to talk some more. And will there be other podcasts about other really cool stuff? Of course there is. And will humanize move forward into the future with joy and hope and power? Uh, yes. And do I feel energized today? Absolutely. And why do I seem to have more energy? Because I'm getting a lot of emails from people lately that suggest that, that this show and these conversations are actually making people's lives more meaningful. Or, in the words of the immortal Robert Ingersoll, and actually he's not immortal, nobody's immortal, but in the words of the totally worth remembering and celebrating Robert G. Ingersoll, I too have my religion.
it is this. Happiness is the only good. The time to be happy is now. The place to be happy is here. And the way to be happy is to make others happy. This is the religion of usefulness. This is the religion of reason. There's an Ingersoll quote for you. Yeah. For those of you that have been missing the Ingersoll quotes, there, I put out a little, a little classic. And you know what? I'm thrilled to be sharing quotes and conversations and emails and relationships and all of the stuff that we share around Bart, this BartCampolo.org. If you like and this you podcast, please consider supporting oh, it every me. month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424 291 2092. That's 424 291 2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life.